own a Bible, you can keep that as our gift to you. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 3, read on down through verse 14. Word of God says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are a good and gracious Father, and that salvation is more than just getting out of hell. Salvation has everything to do with inheritance. And Father, thank you so much that you have adopted us into your family. You treat us as sons that will be receiving an inheritance that we do not deserve. Indeed, your grace is enough. Thank you so much for that. And as we hear the word, I pray that the Spirit would open our hearts and open our minds so that we may receive, receive it with gladness, that we may perceive it and understand it, and so that we may know how we are to live in response to the word that will be preached this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Did you guys know that the Bible says that Christians are rich. Um, To drive home the point here, I have a gigantic dollar bill. That Christians, all Christians are rich. That God has richly poured out blessings upon us. That's what the Bible says. Now before you look at me and say, you know, I need to put on a white suit, get a hair helmet, and go talk on TV... Let me just read some verses for you right out of Ephesians. Um, Well, verse 8 that Deemer read says that the riches of His grace have been lavished upon us. Paul uses this language over and over again of richness, of of lavished pouring out of blessings. Verse 11, in Him we've obtained an inheritance. We'll talk about inheritance today. Um, Verse 18 The riches of His glorious inheritance. Chapter 2, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. Verse 7 of chapter 2. That He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. 
keeps referring to faith even as the gift of God, a rich, glorious gift that God's given us. Verse 2 of chapter 3, God's given us a stewardship of grace. Verse 7 of chapter 3, the gift of God's grace. And then in verse 8 of chapter 3, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Again, the word riches in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 16. According to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Verse 20 talks about how He has abundantly done more than we could ask or think. And over and over and over again, a theme of the book of Ephesians is the riches of His grace. And of course, when I talk about Christians being rich, and all Christians are rich, I'm not talking about dollar bills. What I am talking about, though, is the richness that comes in Christ when we do what the dollar bill says we should do. But it's only in tiny little print, our national motto, which is, in God we trust. When we place our hope and our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ alone, where's them? Let's see here. You have your binoculars. Can you see the little, in God we trust? He brought binoculars today to look at me during the, during the sermon. Okay, kind of like an opera, you know, putting the little binoculars on. In God we trust. When we placed our hope in Christ alone, then we are rich. And it has nothing to do with this right here. It has nothing to do with money. Unfortunately, there is an abundance. There we go. Hey there. Uh, it's, unfortunately, we have an abundance, an abundance of false teachers out there today who will tell you that no, being a Christian means you are materially wealthy. And that actually the amount of material wealth you possess is a sign. It's a demonstration of how much faith you have and how close you are to God. Because God doesn't God bless those who are His children? And that's taking these texts and other texts way out of context. As a matter of fact, it's twisting the Scripture horribly. And the Bible nowhere says we'll be blessed with material wealth. There's no um, surety there, certainty that we'll be blessed with material wealth. Although we all have been blessed in some way or another. The type of richness that we're talking about today are the riches of His grace. Which is, I entitled this whole series, The Riches of His Grace. Because it seems to be this overflowing, continual theme throughout the book of Ephesians. Now what I want us to do today is to finish last week's sermon... Um, and then bring it to a point of application specifically about a specific topic today that, uh, that deals with our riches and understanding our riches in light of the richness of God's grace. You remember last week we began this passage and we were only able really to get through the first couple of points. Um, and then we came to the third point about inheritance and that's what we're going to talk about today. You remember last week um, we talked about this first, uh, this verses 3 through 14, how it's one long sentence. It's this blessing that, uh, that Paul is proclaiming, this blessing that he's uh, declaring, which is just a praise. It's almost like a hymn that he just, he bursts out in sort of this, just this continuous praise. Verses 3 through 14 are one sentence in the Greek that contains 202 words, which I think God... Uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did that intentionally just to show us the unending out overflow of praise that's just coming out of Paul's heart here as he thinks about what God has done for us. Really, you can encapsulate these 14 verses in this, that, that, that what Paul is doing here, he is blessing God for what he's done for us in Christ. He's, he's blessing him, blessing God, for blessing us with every conceivable spiritual blessing. Verse 
3 kind of sums it up for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we focused in last week a little bit on that word in Him or that phrase in Christ, in Him, in the Beloved, which just is repeated uh, 11 times in these verses, these, uh, these verses uh, 3 through 14. And uh, we talked about how that's where the blessing comes from as we think about the richness of his grace it it comes from a life that is lived in him and i used an illustration last week of an airplane that there's two ways to fly you can go to the edge of a building and jump off of it and you can fly for a few seconds and then your flight is over or you can go get in an airplane and you can fly and that's uh that flight will take you somewhere and so there's this, this image of us being in Christ. We receive, we can do nothing on our own. We can't jump off a building and fly. That God gets all the credit. God gets all the glory when we are in him. And so there were a few points I had from last week. Uh, if we are in him, we should be overflowing with praise because, first of all, the Father has chosen us to be his faultless adopted sons. Okay? Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. So God the Father, we see the Trinitarian aspect of God in this whole passage as well. God the Father has chosen us to be his children uh, he's chosen us for holiness and blameless. And we camped out there a bit last week, talked about election, predestination, uh, choosing and adoption and holiness. But our second point was that if we are in him, we should be overflowing with praise because the Son has ransomed and forgiven us by his blood. Ransomed and forgiven us by his blood. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his Grace, And we see a shift here from the past of being eternity past that the Father chose us in eternity to the here and now. This is a present tense being used saying in him we have redemption through his blood. According to the riches of his grace, which verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then our last point was, if we are in him, we should be overflowing with praise because we possess a heritage that has been sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. And again, we see the Trinity at work here. The Father chose us before the foundation of the world to be his children. The Son's ransomed us and forgiven us by his blood. That's the only way we can be his children. And... We possess an inheritance or a heritage, I'll use those words interchangeably today, that has been sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. So we see the Trinity at work here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. So now we're going to camp out a little bit here on verses 11 through 14 and uh, focus in on this text and bring it to a point of application this morning. I'm going to spend a lot of time on application this morning. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And all of this, all of this is to the praise of his glory. All of this has been done by his will and for his glory. So here's the logic of the text. We've been predestined, chosen to be faultless, adopted sons. Okay, that's in eternity past. So in the present reality today, we know that we have been ransomed and forgiven. We can have confidence because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And if we are therefore forgiven, we are holy and we are adopted as, as his children. We are therefore beloved sons. And then therefore we have an inheritance. We need to understand what it means to be an adopted child of God. And we could camp out here and just do a whole sermon on adoption and, and how important that is. If we are if we are in Christ, then the Father's love for the Son, for His only begotten Son, has been poured out upon us. And we have a heritage or an inheritance. Now, I haven't adopted a child. Uh, the Webs have adopted a child, and, and so they can identify more with, with what, uh, what, I, what this passage is talking about here. But, but the love that Deemer has for for Elijah is, is a genuine love for a child that, that wasn't his and then now is his. And he has this overwhelming love for this child. And if you've read uh, the um, Evans blog and if you kept up with what's going on there, you see the love that they already have for, for Vera. And, the, and this is, this, she, she's part of who they are. And they just have this overwhelming love for her. And the only thing I can identify it with is just that, you know, my wife and I have had the opportunity to be involved in safe families and have had children in and out of our home. And this last one was the most difficult child to let go of. And it's not intended to be an adoption. It's intended to be short-term placements. And, um, but even this morning, as I was uh, getting ready, I looked over at the empty high chair sitting there. And it just, my heart just began to ache again, just like it was aching on, on Friday. And I, I, was, I was so sad because even though this child wasn't ours, for two and a half months she was. She was ours, and we were able to just love on her like she was our child. And so if that type of love can exist with human beings for adopted children or temporary children or whatever, just imagine the love that God has for us. It's the very love he has for the Father that's been poured out upon us the moment we were adopted as his children, the moment we were made his in Christ, that, that, that love was poured out upon us. And we know that moment happened in eternity past. He's loved us from the very beginning. He loved us before we were ever born. So I want us to think about this inheritance or this heritage that we have because he loves us so much. So I'm going to ask some questions about our inheritance this morning. Number one, who is the source of our inheritance? When we look at this text here, quite simply, the source of our inheritance is Christ. Obviously, in him. In Him, we've been united to Christ in His death and His resurrection. So in Him, we've obtained an inheritance. The old life is gone. The new life has come. We are new creations in Him. This phrase, we have obtained an inheritance. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance. This phrase here is actually one very long, complex Greek word. Okay, It actually means to assign by lot or to a portion by lot. It's, uh, I'm not going to go into the grammar here. Quite honestly, I don't understand all the grammar and I need a lot of help to understand all the Greek, but it's in the aorist tense, passive voice, indicative mood, which means that it's, pa it's it, since it's past tense, aorist is past tense, because it's past tense, 
uh, and the way Paul uses this, the way the, the Greek writers would use this, it's a, it's a past tense word used to uh, indicate that what's going to happen is a certainty. In other words, it's talking about something that's going to happen in the future. We are going to receive an inheritance, but it's already happened. It's sure because it's in God's plan. And because it's in the passive voice, it can be translated in two different ways. Now, it can be translated the way our ESV translates it in the text I just read. In him we have obtained an inheritance. It's talking about us obtaining an inheritance. I'll just, does anybody else have any translation that translates it differently this morning than that? Because there is another way to translate the text. I'd be curious to know. Okay, Warren, what does yours say? Yes. Okay. All right. In him we were also chosen, having predestined. I think it's probably referring to there too. Uh, what, what, what translation is yours? NIV. I'm really sorry about that. Um, Yours is probably referring to, the NIV is probably referring to us being his inheritance. In other words, it can be translated two ways. It can be translated that we are receiving an inheritance or that we are God's inheritance. We are Christ's inheritance. And that would be an accurate translation as well in, in the sense that grammatically and theologically it's correct. You can go either way here. Grammatically or theologically, you can go either way. Because the Bible does teach us that we receive an inheritance, but it also teaches us that we are God's special possession. We are His inheritance. Matter of fact, if you look at the text here, remember last week we read Deuteronomy 7, 6. Okay, and this text seems to have some ties to some Old Testament language like this one. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So in the context here where Paul's talking about us being a new people, there's Jews and Gentiles, but in Christ we are one. As we read through um, Ephesians, we will see that being a theme that comes up over and over again. Paul says there's no longer Jew nor Greek. We are one new people. And even here in this text, in verse 12 and in verse 13, he talks about we. And when he says that, he says, he's talking about Jews. And then he says, but you. And he's talking about Gentiles. And he's talking about the reconciling of the Jews and Gentiles coming together in one people. So from that perspective, Paul might be referring to us as one people being God's treasured possession. It would be similar to 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Jesus talks that way too in John seventeen twenty four, We read this verse last week when he talks about those whom the Father had given to him, whom you have given me. And so both that translation can be correct, that we are God's treasured possession. But I believe the context here, and remember this is, we're blessing God for blessing us with every conceivable blessing. I believe the context here leans more towards the interpretation that the translators of most Bibles and most of our English translations have, have come up with, which is simply this, that we are the beneficiaries of an inheritance. We have received amazing blessings of inheritance. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So I think that's the context here. I think that's what it's referring to, that we have in him an inheritance awaiting us. Now, we do not have an inheritance due to anything that we have done. It has nothing to do about us. Yes, we can store up treasures in heaven, but even our good deeds, anything praiseworthy that we might do, we cannot be tempted to take credit for because it's due to God's work in us. As you grow in Christ, God makes you more like Christ by the power and presence of His Holy Spirit. Does anybody in here want to take credit for that? Does anybody in here want to take credit for your sanctification? I don't think so. Because the Bible doesn't give us any credit for it. We do have responsibility. There are things that God asks us and calls for us to do so that we might grow in Him. But even those things, we rely totally upon the presence of the Holy Spirit for them to come about, for them to happen. Now, an inheritance or a heritage, by its very nature, is something received, not earned. It is bestowed upon someone. Jesus is the one to whom the inheritance is rightfully due, but we are in Him then we are made co-heirs with him, and we receive by grace an inheritance. Let me just read a few other scriptures that talk about our inheritance. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, put, if you by the Spirit, you put, the dead, the, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Holiness, okay? Holiness is important. Verse 14 of Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Galatians 3 29. If you are Christ's, okay, this kind of talks about both things. We are his possession and we receive an inheritance. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Titus 3, 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In Galatians 4, 6 and following says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you no longer are a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. There was an article in the Washington Post back last year or a couple years ago in 2009. It began with these words. The king folds her own laundry, chauffeurs herself around Washington in a 1992 Honda, and answers her own phone, her boss's phone too. And what the article was about was a lady by the name of, let me make sure I get it right, Peggy Lean. Yeah, Peggy Lean Bartels. She was a secretary to the Ghanaian embassy in Washington for 30 years. She was originally from Otuam, Ghana, which is a small city of about 7,000 people in Ghana. And her story is kind of uh, interesting. When uh, the 90-year-old king of Otuam, Ghana died, the elders did what they'd always done. 
They did a ritual, and it's a kind of a weird, crazy ritual, a ritual to determine the next king. They would pray. Okay, now certainly they're not praying to God here, so this is just an illustration. They prayed, and they pour schnapps on the ground while they read the names of the king's 25 relatives. When the steam rose from the schnapps on the ground, the name that they were reading at that moment would be the new king. And that's exactly what happened when they read Peggy Lean's name. Now, so now today, Peggy Lean is a king. Yes, she's a king, not a queen, because when she pointed out to the elders that she was a woman, they replied by saying the office of the king was the only post that was open. So she's now a king. And when she's in Ghana now, she has a driver and a chef, a palace. She has the power to resolve disputes, appoint elders, manages more than a thousand acres of her family-owned land. She even wore a heavy crown on the day of her coronation. As we think about Peggy Lean's story, when we consider what the Bible says to ordinary believers like you and me, and we read here that, that we are to praise God, bless God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ, that we've been had these riches poured out upon us, these spiritual blessings, that we've been elevated to the status of a royal priesthood. The story reminds me of what's happened to us. That we have been inherit, we have been adopted, and we have been given a royal inheritance. So, who is the source of our inheritance? It's Christ. And because we are in Christ, we have a royal inheritance. What is the substance of our inheritance? What is the substance of our inheritance? It's future-oriented, but we have a foretaste of it now. I read another story this weekend of a, of a wealthy man who wanted to um, do something special for his, uh, a guy who worked for him. And so he, he was going to write him into his will, and he, in his will he was going to give him $10,000 when he died. But he wanted him to have a taste of that legacy and, and, that, and that heritage, that inheritance before he died. So he allowed him to collect interest on that $10,000 while it was in the bank. So every month he received like a $600 check. And so it was a kind of a, a down payment, if you will, or a, uh, just a foretaste of what he was going to inherit in the end. And so the substance of our inheritance, the, 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 the maximum expression of our inheritance is awaiting us in heaven. Everything that belongs to Christ okay, now belongs to us apart from his divinity. And we can have a foretaste of some of that now. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are what? They are the fruit of the Holy Spirit in us. And that is a taste of the blessings that God has given us. On top of that, we have eternal life. We have victory. We have power. We have glory. We have holiness. And we should be growing in holiness. We, have, we will receive new bodies. We will be on a new heaven and a new earth. And we will be, be reigning in a new heaven and a new earth. And more important than all of that, we will have unending fellowship with God. And He Himself will be our greatest treasure. We have a foretaste of it now. But, but it's only, only a little bitty glimpse of what's to come for those who belong to Christ and those who are receiving this glorious inheritance. When we talk about being rich in Christ, uh, it makes me so sad those who do uh, preach and teach that, that Christians are to be rich. I heard a preacher once say that, he said, don't get, a, go, don't get on to me for driving around in Rolls Royce. It just shows how close I am to God. And that made me very, very sad. If, if, the, if our car indicates how close we are to God, then some of us in here have some, some issues. But that's not the case at all. They're selling themselves short. Matter of fact, they're, 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 they're believing a false gospel in many ways. And, and so um, the, 
the sad thing is, is that, that the treasures that are truly awaiting those who are in Christ, <laughs> that these things on earth, a, a new Rolls Royce has, or, or whatever kind of car you want to think of, doesn't even compare to what's waiting for those who belong to Jesus. So what is the substance of our inheritance? Next question I want us to ask is how secure is our inheritance? How secure is our inheritance? Well, first of all, we read in this text here, it is secured by God's invincible purpose and unwavering will. Verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. His will, his purpose can't be thwarted. Isaiah 46, starting in verse 9 and then in verse 10, says, God speaking, says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. It was not human merit. It was not blind fate. It is the work of God, the predestining, planning, with purpose, with power, purpose of God, will of God, that exalts His Son as His Son works, as we live in Him, exist in Him, and as His Son works in us through His Holy Spirit. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. So, it is secure by the purpose of God, the unwavering will of God, but it is also secured by the work of the Holy Spirit. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, verse 13, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. According to the Bible, we've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The seal here that Paul refers to is an official mark of identification uh, that would be placed on a contract or a letter or some other important document. It carries with it several things. Authority. When the king would put his seal on something, that meant it, it was coming about, about by his authority. So when the, we, the Holy Spirit's presence with us demonstrates God's authority over our lives. It also would demonstrate authenticity. We've got a dollar bill down here. That's not an authentic dollar bill, obviously. And, but authentic dollar bills have a certain, certain marks within them, certain seals within them. That, that mark their authenticity. And so the seal of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, marks our authenticity. If you don't, go through that list. Go through the list of the, gifts of, of the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Go through that list daily. Recite that verse to yourself daily because that is the outflow of the Spirit's work in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If those things are not evidenced in you, then perhaps you are grieving the Holy Spirit in some sort of way. Perhaps there's some sort of area in your life where you are not submitting to the Holy Spirit. But if you're not seeing some sort of outflow of that from your life, then you may not have the seal of authenticity that needs to be there if you truly are a Christian. And then also, not only does a seal demonstrate authority, authenticity, but also demonstrates ownership, like a brand on a cattle. That seal of the Holy Spirit demonstrates that we belong to the King. We belong to God. 
So we have the king's authority, we have the king's authenticity, and we have the king's ownership put into our life through the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ as he has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians 4.30, later on we'll get to this passage. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It is possible to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Here's why not. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There will be a tension in your life. A terrible tension. You will grieve the Spirit of God and you will grieve yourself if we continue to live in sin. And that will be evidence. One of the things that, that I not only remind myself of, but I remind others of who may come to me and say, I'm struggling with my assurance of my salvation. And if they come to me and say, I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this sin in my life, and I'm struggling with assurance of my salvation, and I hate this sin in my life, and I want to defeat this sin in my life, but they're questioning their salvation. If they hate their sin, and they're, and they're repenting of their sin, and if their sin just drives them to the ground in repentance, that's evidence to me that the Holy Spirit is there. Because there's that horrible tension in our life. We can't stand what we're going through. But if there is a different type of grief, a worldly grief that just gets upset when we get caught, we're upset with the way things have turned out, we're upset with the way people have reacted to us or whatever else because of our sin, but the sin itself isn't grieving us, and if none of the circumstances would have happened, we'd have gone on with life and it wouldn't have bothered us at all, that's a sign that the Holy Spirit is not there. And so when you're questioning your salvation, and all of us go through times of introspection and question, we have to ask ourselves, are we grieving over our sin? Because our sin, according to 2 Corinthians, I mean Ephesians 4.30, should grieve the Holy Spirit because we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5, 5, And he who has prepared for us this very thing is God. This is referring to a new body. He who has prepared this thing for us is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So there's a guarantee that we're going to receive a new body, that we're going to be in heaven. And what's the, what's the guarantee of that? It's the Holy Spirit in our life. And now let me bring us to a conclusion with just some application with a final question. Okay? And let me set this up by simply saying, that by God's providence, we're in this text at this time. And I, at the same time, been asked by our stewardship team to consider a message on stewardship. And I usually don't take requests for, I don't have a request box up here. What do you want me to preach on? Uh, and so I'm hesitant when someone comes and says, I think you should preach on this, unless it's the Holy Spirit. And so, but the stewardship team had asked me to preach for a variety of reasons on on stewardship, we haven't had a stewardship message in a while, and so I prayed about it and struggled with whether or not to do it. And, and then as I really felt the Lord leading us to Ephesians, and then the Lord leading us to this text on the exact day that we were going to be presenting some stewardship material to the church, I felt like God was opening up opportunity for me here to, to, to take a point of application from this fact that we've received an inheritance. And we're not, we're not departing from the text here. We're just going to take this and apply this in a very specific way. And here's how we're going to apply it with one final question. How is the stuff we have now affected by our inheritance? Because we have some stuff. We all have some stuff. You're in here this morning, you have stuff. You may not have a lot of stuff. You may not have good stuff. You may not have the best stuff, but you have stuff. And the question is, how, does, how is our stuff, 
I know stuff is kind of a silly word. I was just trying to find another S. How is our stuff affected by the fact that we have been lavishly blessed by God and we have these riches in heaven, spiritual riches? We've already kind of touched on it a little bit this morning. Because these spiritual riches have nothing to do really in the sense that that, that we are not aiming for, we are not going after worldly wealth. But it does affect us in another way because it changes the way we handle the worldly wealth that we have been given if we understand our inheritance correctly. And so I want to just bring up a couple of points real quick here this morning. How is the stuff that we have now affected by our inheritance? But first of all, our minds... If, if, we, if we are thinking about our inheritance in Christ, our minds shift from earth to heaven, empowering good stewardship. Our minds shift from earth to heaven, empowering good stewardship. Colossians 3.1 If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Here it is, in Christ again. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. In other words, if we keep our mind focused on glory and on Christ and on what we have in Him and who we are in Him, we keep our minds focused on the great joy and and, and, and tremendous richness of blessings that we have in Christ, it changes the way... We handle things on earth because our eyes are no longer focused on the things of the earth. Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Paul said in Philippians 3, 14, one of my, my, probably my favorite chapter in all the Bible, Philippians 3. I press on toward the goal to win the prize, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's a greater prize. There's a greater thing. Matter of fact, earlier he has said, I consider all these other things, including his past and his prestige, because he was a pretty prestigious guy when he was a Pharisee. He considers it all rubbish. He considers it all dung, trash, flush it compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Therefore, he sets his eyes on things of heaven. He sets his eyes on the prize that is to come, and he can let go of all those other things. Having our eyes set toward heaven and our minds fixed on heavenly things will keep us from misinterpreting the difficulties that God in his sovereignty ordains and allows in our lives. Mark 16, let me take you to another text here. Another time when when Jesus speaks about setting our minds on heaven. I want you to hear what I just said. Having our minds set on heaven helps us deal with possibly misinterpreting things when difficulties come into our life. So here's Peter in Matthew chapter 16. And this is right after he has proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah. He's he's proclaimed Jesus, who Jesus is, and, 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 and Jesus affirms him for that and says, yes, blessed are you, Simon. Okay, and, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he, so Simon's coming off of a great moment here. And then in verse 21, it says that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer 
many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now I'm thinking what Peter's thinking here is no way, Jesus, we got your back. He was still prideful. He was focusing on himself. And then it says that Jesus turned to Peter in verse 23 and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, we can't handle bad news. We can't handle struggles. And I know in, in this case, let's just take that and apply it to a financial situation. If God so ordains that your stuff get wiped out, how are you going to handle that? The only way you can handle that is if your mind and your eyes are fixed on heaven. And also, when our mind and our eyes are not fixed on heaven, and take this from someone, and I'll just be blunt and honest with you here, when it comes to stewardship of resources, I have failed, I feel like, more than I have succeeded. And oftentimes it's because I haven't gone to the Word, I haven't spent time in prayer, I haven't focused on heaven, and instead I've allowed the distraction of the world, whether, whether or not it was, a, it was a crisis, or whether or not it was just a materialistic want, whatever it might be, I've allowed those things to capture my eyes, and instead, I've misused what God has given to me. Now I think we all have to some degree. There are some in here are better stewards than others of their finances. But the point is, that when we get our eyes off of heaven, we begin to slip up in the area of good stewardship. Stewardship of our stuff is only possible when we understand that we are sons with an eternal inheritance and that we've been given, um, what we've been given now, here and now, is not eternal. You can't take it with you. Our perspective of the future changes how we handle our wealth here and now. Luke 16, Jesus said, one who is faithful, this verse should convict all of us. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is, not, which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In other words, if we have been transformed, if we have been made new, if we have been made heirs, then we will understand that this stuff here and now is nothing compared to our true riches. Yet we will also understand that what we have here and now is to be used for His glory and will gladly give it up to Him for Him to use however He sees fit. And thus good stewardship is desired by us. It's empowered by God's work in us, and if we are bad stewards and use our money on us, and we are mastered by materialism, we demonstrate that we are either immature in our faith, and we have the presence of the Holy Spirit doesn't have His way with us like it should, or we demonstrate that we're not saved at all. Good stewardship, according to Jesus, has some pretty serious consequences. The way we view our earthly stuff is evidence of who rules our heart. It's a diagnostic tool for our spiritual health. You know the story of the rich young ruler, right? He comes to Jesus, says he's obeyed most of the commandments. And Jesus said, great, sell all your stuff, follow me. And he can't do it. And it's a, it's a demonstration of where his spirit truly was, that his heart was still hard. 
and he didn't follow Jesus. He went away, what did it say? He went away what? Sad. He was grieved. He was grieved that the Lord would require him to give up all his stuff. Then there was Zacchaeus in Luke 19. You remember him? Okay. Uh, after Jesus came and had dinner with him, he declared that he was going to restore all that he had stolen from people. He was a thief. He was a tax collector and a thief. Those are synonymous sometimes. He was a tax collector and a thief. And he gave back to those who he had stolen from, it says, four times. Four times the amount. And then he said he gave half his money to the poor. So not only did he give four times the amount that he had stolen, then he gave half of everything he had to the poor. And after he did that, Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house. Salvation didn't come to Zacchaeus because he did that. Those things were the evidence that Zacchaeus had a new Lord. And his Lord was no longer money. His Lord was no longer extortion. His Lord was no longer collecting money that did not belong to him. His Lord was now Jesus, therefore he could let go of everything. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, Jesus saw that Zacchaeus' heart was no longer in his treasure. And he knew that he had Zacchaeus. Of course, he knew he's the one that made it happen. He had Zacchaeus' heart. Salvation had come to Zacchaeus on that day. The eye, according to Matthew 6, 22, this seems like a weird passage in the middle here talking about money, but it makes sense when you understand that this is referring to how we look at stuff. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for he either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's Matthew 6, 19 through 24. And so in the middle of this passage, Jesus talks about your eye. Well, why was he talking about optical health in the middle of this passage? What he's talking about is, what are you looking at? Are your eyes going towards the things of the earth? Or are your eyes going towards the things of heaven? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He'll take care of all these other things. Where are our eyes focused? Are they fixed on heavenly things? If they are, it'll change the way we look at our stuff. I love this quote from Spurgeon. Spurgeon had a way about him of just talking with such great uh, uh, illustrative language where he could just illustrate things so well. He says this, Who chides a servant for taking away the first course of a feast when the second consists of far greater delicacies? Who can regret that this present world passes away when he sees that an eternal world of joy is coming? The first course is grace, but the second is glory. And that is much better as the fruit is better than the blossom. I love that. So the image here is we have a course of blessings that God's given us. But there is a second course coming. And don't get upset don't get upset that God wants you to focus more on the second course than on what he's given you right here and right now. Be willing to let it go. Just as a servant comes up and is going to take that plate from you, let it go because what's coming next is far greater. It's far greater. Our grip, which brings me to my next point. 
Our grip on our stuff is loosened, empowering sacrificial living and peaceful contentment. Okay, so this is what happens when, when we understand our inheritance. We understand what we've inherited. We understand the second course. Our grip on our stuff is loosened. We're not sitting there holding on to that plate. No, God. No. Just give me back that jello. Okay, we, our grip is let go when we understand what we've inherited in Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God, as I mentioned earlier, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I think I gave this illustration once before, but it's good. It's worthy of repeating. William Borden, if you know who William Borden was, he was a wealthy Christian growing up in Chicago. He was heir to the Borden milk fortune. So if you've seen Borden milk, that's this dude. When he was in his first year at Yale, he committed himself to going and reach, to reach Muslims in North India. Three years later, he sailed for Egypt to study Arabic before going to India. He knew that money could not mean security, so before he left, he gave away all of his earthly possessions, nearly one million dollars to various different missions organizations. He was in Cairo for four months when he contracted spinal meningitis, and he was dead within weeks. And they found a piece of paper with some words scrawled on it under his pillow that said this, No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. You see, when our eyes are on heaven, that's the way we can handle our earthly things. We don't have any regrets. We can let go. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Jesus told a parable of a man in, in Luke, six, uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 16. He said, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is for the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now don't confuse this parable. It's not talking about that we shouldn't save. Have a savings account. Save up for a rainy day. Do the things that are responsible. Read Proverbs. It'll teach you about responsibility with finances. We should be doing these things if we're not already. What the, the point of the parable is simply verse 21. This guy was not rich towards God. He did all this for himself. All this for himself. So even the stuff that we have that we set away for a rainy day, the purpose of that should be for the glory of God. Everything that we store should be for the glory of God. And if God comes to us like he did to William Borden, and through his spirit and through his word leads us to give it all away and have no regrets, no retreat, and go out and give a life over to Christ, then we do it. We are rich toward God. Philippians 4.10, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that in whatever situation I am, to be content. <clears throat> I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, at, um, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble, as you Philippians, you yourselves know, that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. Okay, when I talk about our grip on our stuff being loosened and empowered for sacrificial giving, it also empowers us for peaceful contentment. Contentment like William Borden had. Contentment like Paul has. Whatever the circumstance, I've learned to be content. You know what Paul's desire was at the end of that passage? When he wanted people to give, it wasn't because he needed it. Whether he had money or not, it didn't matter to him. He actually wanted them to experience the fruit that came from being able to give to God. He says that. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. My final point this morning is this. Our hearts are stirred up when we have our eyes fixed on our inheritance. Our hearts are stirred up by love, empowering, generous giving. We looked at Acts 2, 42-47 a few weeks ago. We looked at Acts 4, 32-37 earlier when we studied, uh, been studying Acts. And we see here that the church had this generosity about them, this generous giving that was empowered. How was it empowered? It was empowered because these people knew who they were in Christ and what they had in Christ. Acts 20, 35, this is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. This is the last time he sees them, and he says this. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. If you had to guess a chapter in the Bible that used the word grace more than any other chapter in all the Bible, let me just get some guesses out there. What chapter do you think uses the word grace more than any other chapter in all of Scripture? Any ideas? Hmm. No one wants to say anything because you know I'm setting you up. Any ideas? Don't go to your concord. Don't go to the back and look at the word grace and your little concordance there. Would you guess it's somewhere in Romans? Maybe? Maybe. Actually, it's in 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians 8 has nine mentions of the word grace in it. You know what 2 Corinthians 8 is all about? It's all about giving. You see, Paul ties the grace of Jesus Christ that works in us to our generosity. I don't think it's a leap to, to talk about these things in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. I don't think it's a leap to jump from this and then talk about how we give of our financial resources. Because actually, when we understand Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, our generosity just flows because we understand grace. Let me just read this passage for you, and then we'll conclude. 2 Corinthians 8, 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify beyond their means, and of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor, that can be translated grace, for the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace 
But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, and in, your, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And the text goes on. It's really one of the most powerful passages on giving, and I want to encourage each family to read it if you can this week. And then later in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Are we talking about money here? Because the televangelist would say, if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. And he'll say, give $1,000. Like I heard a televangelist once say, call in right now. Do you have credit card debt? This is exactly what he said. Do you have credit card debt? He pointed his finger right there in the, in the camera and said, do you have credit card debt? If you do, right now, call in right now. Put a $1,000 pledge on that credit card and God will clear it off. Put that seed so generously on that credit card and God will clear out your credit card. He'll bring that balance down to zero. What a lie from the very pit of hell. It's not, it's not at all what Paul's talking about. Because the richness that we reap is not in material blessings. You know what? We may have a foretaste of some things here. God may bless you with some material blessings because you've been a good steward of what he's given you. But you know what? The point is this, that we're going to reap bountifully with riches that are in heaven. Verse 7 of that passage. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart. Don't let a number called 10% cause you to decide what you're going to give to the Lord. You decide what the Lord's, you decide based upon how he's leading you in your heart. You know what? It may be a lot more than 10%. It may be less. Because we're to give, according to this passage, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. There's the word again. Grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. There's the key. Knowing what grace he's given us. He's given us everything we need for life. He's given us everything we need for godliness. He's made this grace abound to us. He's overflown on us with a richness of grace. And if we understand that, then we will give out of the generosity out of the love and the cheer that comes from a heart that understands his inheritance. So when you walk up to this thing right here and you put this thing in, what God wants is cheerful giving. You know the story of the widow's mite who gave everything she had. She put it all in because it's what she wanted to do. No one forced her to do it. And then there was the other people that were coming and putting in their 10% or whatever was the right number to put in. And when you walk up here with these tiny envelopes and you put in your offering, you've got to be examining your heart. This isn't just a ritual we do. If you're throwing it in there going, oh, man, I could have used that money this week. Then take it back out. God didn't want that. Take it back out. Spin it. Spin it on whatever you want. When you drop that envelope in there, you say, Lord, you have blessed me in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing that it's ima that's imaginable. And things are way beyond my comprehension. Therefore, I'm giving you, I love you, Lord Jesus. You have poured out your love upon me. And you know what? I'm letting go of this. You can use it however you want. You know what? I'm not going to be able to do everything I wanted to do this month. I'm not going to be able to buy that replacement piece of equipment that went that broke this week i'm not going to be able to do that i'm not going to be able to to buy the new shoes i want i'm not going to be able to do the things that necessarily i wanted to do but i'm giving it to you you can use it however you want god it's all yours 
So don't just follow up here and, and, and walk through some sort of routine. Our giving is down right now. Part of the reason the stewardship team wanted me to do this message. But that can be for a lot of reasons. I'm not so worried about the bottom line, really. I'm worried about hearts. And if the giving is down because hearts are askew, then it needs to be dealt with. If his giving's down because the economy's down, then we'll just make it through. The question is, are we giving generously, freely, out of a loving and cheerful heart? Today we're going to have for you, after the service, you can pick it up in the back there. We've got a book. The Financial Stewardship Team has provided a book for everybody. I'd really encourage you to read this book by John MacArthur. It's called Whose Money Is It Anyway? A Biblical Guide to Using God's Wealth. He talks in here about a lot of things. He does a great biblical exposition of the tithe. You know MacArthur, he's not going to just write a book. He's going to, it's going to be filled with Scripture. And there's a Scripture from beginning to end in here. So this is a great book. It's an easy read. It really is. Uh, take it home. Read it. Also, there's a letter from me about our, about our current situation, how we are right now with finances, and just an encouragement to you. Um, uh, just, and from the, and from the financial, which was from me, but it also it's on behalf of the financial stewardship team. And then also there's just our middle of the year giving record for each individual family. It's in there in that packet. So you can, you can see where you're at personally with your own giving to the Lord and continue to pray about how he wants you to give. And so that's, that's for everybody out there in the foyer. And so I just want to close today thinking about where we started off holding this dollar bill. If we truly believe our national motto, in God we trust, which I think it's funny that God, in God we trust is, is emblazoned upon this thing right here that we so like to hold on to. Because 99.9% .9 of the people trust more in this than they do in God. In God we trust. Our riches that we have are heavenly riches. And that inheritance we have of heavenly riches should empower us to good stewardship, sacrificial living, peaceful contentment, and generous giving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess our sin to you because we're all sinners in here. In all in different points in our life, Lord, we're all at different phases of our growth. God, I praise you that you are a God of great variety. In other words, you you work in different people in different ways. There are ways in my life where I am still so immature in my growth and my understanding of who you are. And there are other ways, other places in my life where I've grown in maturity. And my growth and my sanctification is different than another person's here in this room who may be very strong in an area where I'm very weak. And I praise you for that because that's what the body is for. We come together and, and we, we come together in these strengths and these weaknesses and these different uh, uh, growth areas, these different ways that you've been sanctifying us. Lord, we complement each other and we help each other in this continued work. And we stir each other up for good works. And so, Lord, there's different people here in this room who have different views of money right now. Some of those are of mature understanding of money. And they understand stewardship. And they're walking in great obedience right now. There are others in here just trying to, under, trying to grow in that understand what you mean by stewardship, Lord. What, 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 what do you want us to do with these material blessings you've given us? There are others in here that know what the truth is, but we struggle. We struggle with our flesh. We struggle with sin. We make financial mistakes. And God, I pray, Father, that, 
that all of us would understand that what you're calling us to is to keep our minds and our eyes focused on heaven. And if we'll do that, all this, these things will begin to fall into place. We'll begin to grow in the area of stewardship. We'll begin to grow in the area of giving and contentment when we keep our eyes on heaven and we contemplate this glorious riches that have been made ours through Christ. Lord, it's all about Jesus. If there's anyone here today that thinks this message has been about money, then God, I pray, Lord, that you would change their mind and their heart because it's not about money. It's all about Jesus. Heavenly Father, we know that Jesus spoke more about money than he even did about heaven or hell in the Scriptures. Why? Because God, money is such an easy way to examine whether or not you are truly the Lord of our lives. So we ask your forgiveness for the many ways where we have failed, for the many ways where other lords have sat on the thrones of our heart whether it be our own desires, whether it be our um, pride, whatever it might be. God, we repent of these things. We ask you to take the throne of our lives, including the throne, including the ownership of our wallets. And Lord, we pray now that you be with us today as we go about um, maybe lunches and different things that we do to celebrate fathers today. And Lord, as we celebrate fathers, may we keep in mind the Heavenly Father, who chose us before the foundation of the world and predestined us for adoption, to be sons, to be holy and blameless sons before him forever and ever. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand if you would. We don't have a band here today, but we are going to conclude with a song because I want to conclude with a time of response. I want us to respond with our offerings and our tithes, and I want us to respond with our prayer requests. So I want to take this time to respond. We're going to play a song on video like we do sometimes when we don't have a band here for this time of response, and then uh, real quickly we have a few announcements. because we do have a couple of announcements here. If you haven't 
Yeah, if you haven't had a chance yet to bring your offerings and tithes, then we should be able to do that. But we have a very, very important announcement. I don't want to cut that out. So um, everyone have a seat real quick while Deemer brings us a couple of real, real quick announcements. That song faked me out. I had to run up here. Uh, I, actually, a couple quick things. They, uh, that little packet from the stewardship team that Steve was talking about, that's going to be available in the lobby. So after you're dismissed, if you can just head right out in the back, and Warren will be there to direct you to, uh, to the packet. So uh, take one of those, please. Hey, Deemer, yeah. I want to clarify. I don't think I, in, in the message I said that it has your six-month six giving records in it. That's your family's giving records. It doesn't have everybody's giving records in it. So your family's giving records are in each packet. So I don't want to freak anybody out and think that we put everybody's <laughs> giving records out there. So okay. that was, I wasn't clear. Thank you for that clarification. Um, also, uh, Steve and I are so, so excited about this. Um, coming up soon, um, we're going to be holding a marriage conference here. Um, uh, the dates are on your bulletin in the back, July 29th and 30th. This is the Art of Marriage Conference. And um, Steve and I have been wanting to do this since last fall, really. We've been talking about this for a long time, and it's finally coming to fruition. And we're thrilled about this. Um, Steve and I have really sensed that there's been a lot of spiritual warfare amongst the Harbins family lately, that we've been attacked by the enemy. And over the past several months, it's just been, it's been really wave after wave after wave of, of just hearing from folks that are going through all different kinds of challenges. I mean, all kinds of challenges uh, with all kinds of topics. Uh, but one of the one of the areas that we are concerned about is is families. We want to strengthen families. Jimmy said during the worship time that families are being under attack. Uh, that's true in this church. That's true in the in the world at large. The devil hates families. The devil hates marriage. Marriage is meant to image the gospel of God, and the devil hates that. The devil doesn't want God's beautiful gospel to, to, to be portrayed in marriage as it was intended to be. He will do everything that he can to bring that down. Every single family in this room is under attack in one way or another, in, in different ways. And we have felt burdened for, for many months, since last fall even, to, to put a special emphasis on doing something to help strengthen families. And I think this marriage conference will be the beginning of that. And I, I want everybody, every, every person in this room, every adult in this room to be a part of that conference, even if you're not married. I mean, especially if you're not married, there's going to be some excellent things in this conference that are going to equip you. So if you are married now or think you will be married one day, this is, this is for you. This is going to be a learning experience. I'm excited about it. I'm always looking for tools to, to work on my marriage and strengthen it and, and, and make it grow. So me and D Dana and I are, are excited to be going, about, going to this conference because we want to learn and we want to grow and we need help. And you probably do too. So uh, please join us for that again. It's July 29th and the 30th. Uh, we need to know if you're coming. Okay, the cost of the event is $40 per couple. That's going to provide you with some, some workbooks, some materials that you're going to take to the conference. And uh, we don't want money, however, to get in the way of that. So if you're like, well, I just don't know if I, I don't have $40 for this thing. 
we're not going to let you get away with that excuse, okay? We will, we will help out with scholarships if we need to. We, we want you there that badly. And so if you need a scholarship, come and see me, okay? And we will work something out for you. We just want you to, want you to be there. Not only do we want money to not be an issue, but we don't want child care to be an issue as well. If you, if you can't line up child care or afford child care or whatever, we want to be able to make that available during the conference. So if you need that, uh, let us know. We have sign-up sheets in the back for the conference, but there's also another sheet in regards to child care. You need to let us know if you need that and for what days of the conference that you need that. Do you need it for the Friday night portion? Do you need it for the Saturday portion? Do you need it for both? As much information as you can give us as possible, that's going to be very, very helpful to us in, uh, in making that happen. So please, please, please come. I think you're going to be blessed and you're going to benefit from it immensely. Real quick, uh, here's a little video blurb about the conference. first Family Life Weekend to Remember marriage conferences happened back in 1976. And over the years, we've had tens of thousands of couples who have come through our Weekend to Remember marriage getaways. But the volunteers who had helped put the conference together said, we wish there was some way we could do conferences like this throughout the state of Maine. And Kenny Bunkport and Caribou and all of the little communities. And that's when we started asking the question, what if we could take this conference and translate it for video? And, and not just a video where you'd watch somebody in a hotel ballroom on a stage, but where the principles come alive and, and are presented in a way like, like nobody's ever seen them presented before. I think one of the greatest gifts you can really give to the next generation uh, is faithfulness and fidelity in, in, in marriage. You are ancestors to someone yet to come. up a bit. Hey, kids. <laughs> I expect a husband of mine to be more refined. The thrill is gone. I know the feeling. I was exhausted. This is marriage. There is no wine in marriage. <laughs> mm, doesn't it smell fantastic? Dave. I really have lost my feelings for you. We were in an argument, and I grabbed her as hard as I could, and I threw her down on the bed. During my depression, I just uh, did some things that really hurt Tony, hurt him real badly, and, and hurt our marriage. Where does marriage always go wrong? It's when I want the right to set the rules by which this relationship would work. You don't have issues. You are the issue, both of you. 
Our marriage is uh, the central glue as an institution that is holding civilization together. We are responsible then to turn and to forgive others, even when it's horrendous sin. I want to talk to you, but um, I feel a lot better if you put that knife down. You cannot have a successful marriage without the invasion of the supernatural. What the cross promises marriage is fresh starts and new beginnings. information about the conference uh, in the in the weeks to come uh, but I do hope that you can join us for that there are various many fronts in in spiritual warfare some folks are really dealing with intense spiritual warfare in in the financial area hopefully some of the materials that we're providing like that book uh, will uh, will help with that and and hopefully later on we'll be able to equip you some other in some other areas in 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 regards to finances Um, uh, parenting is another front and spiritual warfare, but so is marriage, and uh, and so we're going to take this head on in regards to marriage with this marriage conference. So please do join us for that. I really look forward to it. I'm going to go ahead and close us in prayer. Um, thank you for staying late and uh, being attentive and hearing the word of God. Father, um, thank you for the privilege of coming to worship you. Thank you that you have adopted us as sons. And even the women here are counted as sons who will be receiving an inheritance. Father, thank you so much for that. Thank you for pouring out and lavishing grace upon undeserved wretches like us. Thank you that we get to enjoy this and you get the glory. Father, I pray that You would increase our understanding of grace and the grace that you give us and the future inheritance that we will claim, that we only have a foretaste of now. I pray that those things, that understanding of grace and the understanding of the inheritance that's to come in the next age would help us in regards to our stewardship. We're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ one day. The cosmos will be ours. And so, Father, I pray that as those truths are impressed in our minds, that would help us to let go when we need to let go of things. Possessions, money, whatever. Our lives, even. Help us to be not just hearers of the word, doers of the word as well. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Go in peace.
and failed attempts to fly.